Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architecture critic and teacher Irénée Scalbert. Scalbert is a key thinker in contemporary architecture, whose writing has ranged from historical appraisals of the work of James Sterling and Allison and Peter Smithson to a book on the French architect Jean Renandi. Most recently, his essays have been collected in the book A Real Living Contact with the Things Themselves, published by Park Books in 2018. I met with Irénée at his home in Kentish Town, where we talked about, among other things, his shift from practice to theory following six years as an architect, the relevance of anthropology to architectural criticism, and the relation he sees between the architect and the gardener. We also spent a good deal of time discussing the title essay of his new book, which explores the origins of architecture's fascination with ordinary life. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I guess we could start by just talking about that relatively strange position that you occupy because you studied architecture yeah. uh, before becoming an academic. Mm-hmm. I am not an academic, but yes, That's right. I, I, I keep insisting that I am an academic, but maybe I am, because everybody tell me I am. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, carry on. Well, I guess that's, uh, I, feel, I feel like that is the place to start, maybe. So you, you studied architecture uh, at the AA, and you got your Diploma of Architecture in 1982, yeah. having moved from France to London to study. What I'm curious about is what your ambitions were at the time, during your time at the AA. Um, because you went on to get your architectural accreditation. Yes. And you practiced for a time. Yes, you practiced six for six years. Yeah. And then came back to teaching and back to theory. Yeah. Um, and so this shift from practice to theory. Mm-hmm is something I'm interested in. While you were studying at the AA, did you know that you would be an architectural thinker? Not at all. And I mean, I was young and I had no particular idea about what the future might be like. But I was extremely curious. And perhaps, you know, for somebody of my age, I was slightly better read than others. You know, I'm French after all. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was an avid reader. But there was never any question at this stage that I would not become an architect, and I had very little idea of what being an architect actually meant in practice. Uh, 
Um, and nor the A, you know, was the A very interested in what an architect is in practice. You know, mm. the A um, thought that people in practice were boring, that the RIBA was a desperately poor institutions and ZA has a, uh, had a great sense of mission and also a highly elevated idea of itself, which actually after a while I thought was quite tiresome and I still do. Um, now, for me, so there, were, so there were a number of things at the A which uh, were a real blessing. So, so first was the general environment. It's not, I'm not even talking about those famous teachers who were there at the time. It's the environment which was to a large degree the creation then of Alvin Boyarsky was extremely liberal. You know, uh, Alvin Boyarsky was willing to let you do anything you wanted, basically, and he would support you. Um, and so it was the overall atmosphere of the place which was hugely exciting. It was not that you could have studied with Rem or you could have studied with Zaha or, or with Peter Cook and so on. That was, to my mind, in hindsight, totally irrelevant. I mean, there could be other teachers, the place would still have been great so long as it would have had this atmosphere. At some point in my third year, uh, I met Colin Rowe very briefly. But so Colin Rowe was coming regularly to give lectures because he was, as you know, the, uh, the mentor of Alvin Boyarsky. Alvin did his PhD with. Uh, Colin Rose, that's very well known. Um, and so he was a regular visitor once a year. And there was never any question that those lectures were presented by Alvin as the kind of one of the big events of the year. And so Colin Rowe had this aura, and in 1978 he published Collage City. And by that point, I opened the book and I became totally besotted with the writing of Colin Rowe. And I had found, in a way, my role model, which in, at this age is, it can be quite a beneficial thing. Mm -hmm. And so then... Hmm. I'm just interested about that encounter with that particular book. What exactly about it were you drawn to? Well, first, I mean, to, you know, I was young, I was 20, and I was naive. And so the first thing you see is somebody who is um, extremely sophisticated in the way he actually put forward an argument. Uh, and that was obviously something I aspired to, uh, you know, wanting to be an intellectual. Uh, and in addition to this, I thought the message, especially of Colossity, much more so than in the mathematics of the ideal villa, was a very strong one about uh, uh, a kind of visceral relationship to modernism, and I thought this was fantastic, somebody who could actually 
respond in writing with so you know in such a gutsy way to something he felt very very strongly about in addition to this um Colin Rowe was very much a liberal um and you know his reference some of his reference or his main reference perhaps where Karl by that point where Popper and uh, Isaiah Berlin and that is something which I uh, immediately became very sympathetic to especially Berlin mm-hmm. um, because I came from a milieu which was not necessarily very liberal. The French are not perhaps drawn to liberalism in the way the English are, I mean liberalism in philosophy. And so I thought that was wonderful, uh, the way Colin Rowe was on the one hand very, uh, you know, he had a tremendous animus against modernism and at the same time was rescuing modernism which he was uh, uh, nevertheless very fond of and trying to get rid of the ideology and keep the formal language. Mm. To me that was a kind of very very courageous and very sophisticated project uh, that you could take something which you really hated for quite a period of your life and and still try to actually extract what was good in it. But I'll, I'll, I, there is one thing which I would like to say which for me was enormously important, uh, which came uh, at the end of my third year. I decided to take a year out. And I chose to go to Korea, South Korea. Um, and for me, this was, uh, I mean, it's, you know, Colin was important to me intellectually, uh, as far as architecture is concerned. Uh, Korea really changed me, and uh, it's just completely reshuffled my you know, things which are much more substantial in a, in a person. Um, and this would be a, a discussion which would be a conversation which would be much too long. Mm. Uh, however, uh, what I saw, you know, in a nutshell, I was working in a very good practice in the South Korea, the space group of Korea. And uh, that was interesting, but that was not the main point. The main point was for me to see uh, Korean's attitude to life and the relative importance which um, building and architecture had to much greater, much broader priorities, which in this case was to build up the country. Korea, South Korea at, at, that, at that particular time was at the, at the uh, beginning of this enormous push for building the country and towards modernity and so on. 
To me, this was hugely significant as an experience. And then when I came back, I'm afraid that the AA, though the AA was still in its glory years, I had completely lost interest. And I, I could have left the AA, you know, and, and not do my fourth and fifth year, it would have probably made no difference at all. My hmm. edu- in other words, my education was finished. So it wasn't that you'd lost interest in architecture, but you'd lost interest in that form of education? I, I lost interest in the values which were peddled by the AA at that time because I thought it was not sufficiently engaged with um, with what architecture, in my mind, could do in terms of uh, making the lives of people better. Yeah. In other words, I I had a view. I I had acquired after Korea a view of architecture, which then was very unpopular, at least in academic circles like the AA and and elsewhere. I should add that architecture could actually make lives better, and that the architecture then to me and still today makes very little sense unless you can actually talk about it in relation to the lives of people it is for. Mm. Yeah. Um, so like how did this uh, impact your decision to work following school? Where did you work after the AA? Um, the uh, very first job I had, there was not much work at the time, uh, and was with a commercial practice called Covell Matthews Whitley, since bankrupt, uh, and it was not not a great job. But for me, that was my first real contact with practice. So I had worked in Korea and for a couple of other people before. But um, what I I still think it was a very very good experience that I understood. I came to understand what development is, and uh, uh, and also that you know in in. At school, you obviously have a term, two terms, you know, to actually design a project. You can articulate it intellectually. If you work in the commercial world, sometimes you have to make a design overnight. Uh, I thought this was usually refreshing. Mm. Uh, I thought it was liberating, and I and I thought it was interesting. So that's what I got from those three years in a commercial practice. Uh, not a huge amount else. I should say that I was spending much of my time in in this practice acting not very responsibly and uh, going from desk to desk. I tend to be sociable uh, and uh, talking to people about architecture and, uh, and asking them whether they thought the work they were doing was really good enough. Uh, in other words, I was I was practicing my skills as a potential teacher, though I didn't know it. Mm. So um, you mm. were in practice from 1982 to 1988. 
At which point you went back to the Hold on, but I miss one point, which okay. I should mention, which for another three years I worked with a man called John Winter. Okay. Now, John Winter is an important, was an important figure in the uh, world of architecture in the UK. Uh, he was one of the people who actually brought the American gospel uh, after the war to the UK by visiting, working with the Eames. He was the first person who worked with the Eames, hmm. working with SOM, Marion Goldschmidt, and so on. And so I was introduced to him by this, I mean, to this um, uh, American architecture. And also he had he had taught at the AA for three years. He was a very close friend of um, a very good architect, including the Smithsons. And it was through him that I met the Smithsons. Mm. Um, and so this contact was important. And he was a man who was charismatic, extremely cultivated and um, architecture-wise. And, and a convinced modernist. And for me, I am not, I wouldn't say I am a modernist labels nowadays, so I'm not sure it means very much for various reasons, but uh, modernism has has always interested me, and here I had it, you know, uh, I could hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. So that was that was important. It's, um, it gives, it g gave some kind of legitimacy to certain things I wanted to uh, later say. Mm. Mm. And what prompted the move back into teaching following the six years in practice? The realization that actually um, I didn't want to be an architect. Okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the most exciting topic to me. Well, I mean, I, I keep thinking that, you know, if you want to be an architect, uh, if, you, if you feel uncomfortable doing DIY, then the likelihood of you being a really good architect is probably diminished already. Mm. And perhaps it's also something to do with my French background. Uh, intellectual work is more highly prized than manual work. You can see it, for instance, in an architect like Bernard Chumi, uh, where the concepts are possibly interesting, but the, the whole making of architecture is very weak. Mm. And this is, I think, a limitation of French architecture, or I should say of much French architecture, not all of it. Um, and so I found that I had peers, architects who were my contemporaries, who were considerably better than I was, and that I would never be able to reach that level. So that was one thing. But the positive side is that I also realized that I was quite good at writing, and that I was possibly better than um, some people who were next to me. And um, so as far as teaching is concerned, well, uh, I had my misgivings being in practice, so I, um, together with a friend who is now in New York called Marek Valchak, we contacted Alvin Boyarski and said, well, you know, would you give us a job? And Alvin, who always liked me, 
Alvin liked people who spoke his mind and that was extremely brash uh, and so Alvin loved this I was never polite I am much more polite now than I used to be um, and uh, he um, and so he uh, welcomed both his friend and I back and gave us a unit at the AA so that was two days per week and um, and the rest of the time I was still in practice or complementing my income with um, uh, a little bit of teaching in other places mm. so that's the way it happened um, and when you started to teach again was there a particular project you had in mind or was it more about just being a teacher being a part of academia um, inhabiting this role of the intellectual it was not part of academia because I, I never enjoy the milieu of academia I find it too enclosed I mean don't forget I love traveling mm. and to me traveling is the antithesis of being an academic mm. um, basically you meet you know anyone and everyone and everything is unpredictable and nothing fits in a category now academia to my mind is anything but all those things mm. um, in other words ivory towers are not for me uh -huh. um, it's funny I feel like there is more of an aversion to that term here than there might be in North America or I've encountered others who've also I almost like recoil that, that idea associated with academia or being called an academic and um, I understand why when you put it that way <laughs> uh, Europeans and especially the French have always had a very peculiar relationship to American uh, with American universities and I should include myself in this, I I I loved being in the states, um, but never felt that you know whether GSD or elsewhere would be my environment. Part and the reason for this was that I felt it was too distant from everyday life. That it was too much homegrown into this greenhouse of. Ivy League mm. uh, schools mm -hmm. <clears throat> and sometimes I should say that I was not understanding what was being said mm -hmm. which all, always makes conversation difficult um, my news of French sometimes can also be obscurantist but um, and so uh, I have never wanted to be an academic I am not an academic but I would like to think that, at least to some degree, I, ha I, I am an intellectual. Maybe many people are intellectuals, but that's, that's a label which uh, I am much happier with. Uh, and uh, I would like to add an adjective to this and, and to say that I would like to be a sensitive intellectual, not, mm -hmm. not just an intellectual peddling ideas and concepts that would not interest me nearly as much yeah. 
I feel like you've dropped a few clues or um, point alluded to a few, you know, lines of thought that we should follow. One being this um, attraction to traveling, mm-hmm. which to me uh, relates really strongly to the role of the anthropologist and how uh, figures in anthropology um, make appearances in your work quite often, especially Claude Lévi-Strauss. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want it before we go there, just kind of put that out to visit later. The other thing um, is this attraction to the everyday, mm-hmm. which uh, to me is a very kind of British sensibility yeah. in architecture. Yeah. And if we can hold on that idea for a moment yeah. and go back to the early 1990s, where um, a small group of architects and artists were meeting um, weekly to share ideas. I think you were a part of this group, this Papers on Architecture group. Yes, I was, Uh, to a limited extent, but um, uh, which one to take first? Sorry. Um, I mean, anthropologist is interested in what is happening in the presence with the people who are in front of him or her. And I guess that was, and it still is, my reaction when I travel. I keep saying to my friends that I am much more interested in ordinary people than I am in famous people. Uh, And most of my friends, I should say, who have become famous tend to be nowadays more interested in famous people. Uh, And that brings us to your second point about ordinariness, which to me means partly the same thing to what you have in mind, this generation of architects, which includes um, in the first place Tony Fretton and then Peter St. John and Adam Caruso, I put them in chronological order, at least my contact with them, and then Sir Jason Bates, and then quite a few others. Now, there are two key things here from the point of view of my own experience. Uh, I, in my fourth and fifth year at the AA, my best friend was, uh, or one of my best friends, uh, was Peter St. John. And, uh, and at that time we were not really talking about the everyday, first the word had not arrived, you know, in architectural discussions, but perhaps, you know, intuitively we were interested in the connection between architecture and experience. And the reason for this, certainly speaking for myself, I think this is this was the case. And, uh, coming back from Korea, seeing a country building itself um, and literally forging its values to a large extent consciously, if you think of it, quite an enterprise. Uh, I uh, I thought that the 
world of the AA was incredibly self-indulgent uh, and because it was only interested in architecture in itself. It was only interested in making beautiful buildings, never mind that it would have some kind of social purpose or social meaning. Typically, Zaha, whom, by the way, I, I've been, in, uh, I quite like as a person, I liked her as a person, uh, and, but to me the idea of an architect who actually storming through and managing through sheer strength of character to impose an approach to design or a particular design on a commission to me has zero interest. I'm not interested. That's not what interests me in, in architecture. What interests me in architecture is how architecture uh, relates to experience, whether this experience is an everyday experience or not. That's what interests me. And that has been, I would say, the one stable theme in everything I have written from day one. I mean, that's, and that's something which I got from more or less that period of time. Possibly one could go further back and see what the roots could be, but I mean, that's not, we don't need to get there. Um, now, um, the connection with the group you are mentioning, which I should say, in my mind, is a loose group, came uh, in the very late 1980s uh, when I became, I started to teach at the AA in 89 and I became very friendly uh, with Tony Fratton. He became a buddy at the AA and we talked, I mean, I mean, uh, probably much more often than weekly. Um, so somehow we got on, there was something about character which, I, his character which I enjoyed, and we were in some significant way on, on the same wavelengths. And I think, you know, the, the key person in this discussion of the everyday is Tony Fretton. He really, I very much doubt that if had he not been on the scene and said what he said and did what he did, whether we would have had this theme of the everyday on the table as it was for quite quite a few years, and and whether we would have had also this loose grouping of people around a certain ideas. Uh, the second thing which uh, I think from my point of view this is all quite subjective, yeah? this is not history, this is mm -hmm. my view of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, uh, it's Peter St. John. Peter St. John, whom you may have met, is an extremely sensitive person. He's acutely sensitive to his um, uh, 
role and being in his contact with others for you know that's part of his making and that in turn is also in the way he designs to some extent it is there also in Adam Caruso's uh, approach but Adam Caruso is more ideological and you know he's a very different character um, <clears throat> and uh, and this extreme sensitivity of uh, and I should say delightful sensitivity of Peter St. John to me was the ideas of uh, Tony Fratton in practice, in everyday practice. You know, it was not only a matter of on, on paper, here I'm not doing justice to Tony Fratton, but I'll say it nevertheless, not only a matter of putting this idea about the everyday on pa from paper to the drawing board, but it was, you had to, to feel it. Um, in your in your own self, to and in such a way that when you uh, may you transfer the sensi sensitivity in architecture, it rang true. Now it, this is something which Peter Saint John, I think, always did, and which is one of my basis for the very great admiration I have both for him as a person and for him as a designer. Yeah? So those are two things, you know, um, Tony Fratton and Peter St. John, I think the key players in this respect. Had they not been there, what we would have had is something quite different. We would have had uh, uh, revival of Peter and Alison Smithson's a rediscovery and revival of their work and they of course talked about the ordinary but it would have had I think quite a different shape to what it actually had during those years. I like the idea that the way in which certain architects were practicing um, could somehow influence the way you approach criticism. Um, that there's this transfer of sensitivity hmm. um, also applies to criticism. And in fact, earlier on, you described yourself as a sensitive intellectual. At least I hope to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's the aspiration. Yes. Um, and so maybe now is the time to start talking about writing and your intellectual project. I mean, most recently, uh, your writing has been collected in the book A Real Living Contact with the Things Themselves, which was published last November um, 2018. And this is a collection of essays from the past 25 years. Is that right? Mm -hmm. These are essays about architects, about different practices, different buildings, but also um, there are some essays in there that are um, teasing out theories about architecture as well. Mm. And the one I'm most interested in that I feel like um, could kind of stand as an allegory for um, both 
a way of making architecture and a way of making criticism is the title essay. Hmm. Um, a real living contact with the things themselves. When I first saw the title, um, I had no idea where it came from, but I suspected or I was reminded of um, two American poets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was reminded of Wallace Stevens, who has this poem called Not Ideas About the Thing, But the Thing Itself. Oh. And then mm -hmm. I was also reminded of um, this phrase from William, William Carlos Williams, mm -hmm. which is no ideas but in things, which became a kind of uh, description of his own poetic method. And the title from this essay actually comes from the German writer Goethe, mm -hmm. um, and it's describing his desire to access real life th through his travels in Italy yeah. and describe things as accurately and precisely and truthfully as possible. Yeah. And this is difficult, I guess, to get at, but it's exciting to me to think that there's a real desire there to um, contact with life itself, mm -hmm. that often criticism um, falls short of. Mm. And so I think what would be exciting for me, <laughs> and hopefully for people listening, is to talk about this particular essay and the ideas that have emerged from it. So you're going to need to help me here because um, it's probably something I won't be able to do lucidly. Well, I mean, perhaps what I, it's about the influence of landscape painters on architects mm -hmm. and what we can maybe get from it today. Um, I think the easiest uh, way to answer your question would be to say how this essay came into being. Mm -hmm. This essay, I cannot quite remember the dates when it was published, but uh, I think I was working on it in the second half of the 90s. This corresponds more or less to the period of the everyday. Yeah? And what... And it's okay, all my essays tend to start that way. I don't know what I'm going to study. I know what's in what is going on in architecture today, the kind of question I want to answer or find some kind of answer to. And so in this case, um, the question which was in my mind was uh, how did the interest which uh, these architects we talked about, like Tony Fretton and uh, Caruso St. John, uh, Sergison Bates and others, how did their interest in ordinary things in the, in the everyday, what were the source of these interests? Specifically at first, what I, want, what I wanted to find out is who had become first interested in non-architect design buildings in history. And so I started to look at um, 
paintings from the 19th century and also the work of architects in the 19th century and relatively quickly it became clear to me that this interest came fr uh, uh, from landscape painters through the picturesque and then had its roots before the picturesque in the work of landscape painters and especially Claude Lorrain uh, in the 17th century while he was in Italy. So for me Claude Lorrain is the fountainhead for all this <laughs> who was first sitting in the open air drawing what was in front of his eyes and trying to actually encapsulate through his drawings and also to some degree through his paintings what was delightful in his experience. Yeah? Mm -hmm. and, and I should say I was very pleased with my discovery. I thought, I, I thought it was an interesting one. I'm not sure at that, at that stage my, my architect's friends understood the great service I was, I'm being ironical here, but the great service I was uh, doing them. Um, but to me, you know, the, sorry, you, you want to say something? I I'm just, well, I just, I feel like it is an exciting discovery mm -hmm. and the way it's broken down in the essay, which I think is maybe helpful to just uh, repeat again. Uh, because the audience for this is general mm. and um, and to probably totally unfamiliar with who this painter was and this period of time art historically. Mm -hmm. But the way you've broken it down in the essay is that landscape painting um, had kind of undergone a shift through this painter's work from, you know, the representation of what you call cosmic landscapes, mm. you know, of God's creation, landscapes that be belong in the category of art and beauty mm. towards more personal landscapes mm. uh, of deeply felt experience. And you've traced this uh, leap mm. through the paintings of this individual artist. Claude Lohan. Claude Lohan. You know, there are, there are a few individuals one love to call by their first name because uh -huh. they have uh, done something so valuable for others. Claude, Claude Laurent is one, so now mm -hmm. we call him Claude. Um, and he is very important because he was the first and his popularity and his fame uh, especially in the 18th century, was huge. Yeah. Um, but this is not the whole story, because then there has been other figures who were almost perhaps equally important, and Goethe would be a candidate. And Goethe had a, uh, has a wonderful phrase in his travel to Italy, he's, uh, he says that while he was in Rome, he was happy to study, but when he arrived in Naples, he only wanted to live. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
and I think this is wonderful because it says precisely what I think this whole genealogy of people I talk about in the essay say that the point is not so much in the learning, the academic learning uh, which one can get, but is into is in the experience and how this experience can then uh, uh, underpin and support the work one is later going to do while one start to work as a painter or as an architect where and if one comes back to one's home of origin. But I mean the, the whole the whole point here is is this intense love for the experience of Italy which was as formative for these people as my own experience of living in Korea uh, was for me. Yeah? So I could maybe even add that my own attitude has been consistent with mm -hmm. what is said in that essay. Um, and um, and so now you you see that these essays, you know, have a point of theory, which is only true to a point, because that's never the way it starts. It starts with a question which is very loosely uh, framed and evolves as I re research for the essay. Um, but in this case, the question was this, and, and it is particularly clearly expressed in this essay. It is how can one actually um, transcribe or make correspond experience, you know, for instance, the experience one wished to happen in a particular design and eventually a building with something which one calls architecture and which is by definition quite rigid. Yeah? Mm. And to me this, and maybe for architects, some architects of my generation, this is the great question of architecture. You know, how can one make something so intangible, so elusive as experience um, at home in something which is as rigid, as inflexible and uh, as architecture. That's a question which at the end has always interested me and I must say I have a special fondness for that essay for that reason because I think it expresses this question perhaps most clearly. But I should say that every essay in this book is in some ways about that. Mm. Okay, I don't want to stay with the title essay just a little bit longer because um, there's a term in there near the end that I find so appealing, so compelling. Um, it's this notion of the architect gardener. Yeah. And I guess I want to arrive at that term with you now <laughs> for the benefit of others. Um, because to me, it's a really compelling 
idea about how uh, how the architect might be or might mm -hmm. practice. And so when we kind of left Claude um, and as the essay unfolds, you look at how certain painters uh, start to train their eye on banal um, structures more so than um, what would typically be celebrated as beautiful. And you look at the Villa Borghese in particular, mm -hmm. right? And there's a, there's a tradition over decades of artists going to this beautiful landscape. But then instead of making pictures of, of what they, you assume, ought to be making pictures of, they make them of the gardener's shed instead. Mm -hmm. The porter's house, the porter's garden, house. gardener's house. It has the gardener's house. Yeah, yeah. And there's this tradition yeah. of painting this house over and yeah. over again, which um, is then a kind of... It's, it's a point where this idea starts to in a way become architecture because then architects start looking at these paintings and become enamored with the gardener's house itself and try in some cases poorly to make imita imitations of them. And what you do is you focus on one successful transcription of that gardener's house by an architect, uh, Schinkel. Yeah. Um, can you talk about his attempt? Why, why that was a success? and how you arrived at this idea of building as gardening and the architect as gardener? Right. I mean, here, uh, because I, I don't actually spell this out in this particular essay, um, I don't quite draw that conclusion that there might be a way for the architect to work as a gardener. Mm. But actually, I do draw this conclusion in another essay, I which know. is not in the book. And in a lecture as well. You gave a lecture at yeah. Limerick called Tomorrow, yeah. in which this association is made. So, yeah. Yeah. so I mean, for me, um, see, it, it, it um, uh, turns around the way a gardener works. And... Gardener um, doesn't have a plan, for and to make the parallel with you know the um, the culture of those architects and painters who were going to Italy in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Uh, you know there were those who were looking at classical buildings. Uh, well-known classical buildings or Roman antiquities and so on, and those I would uh, put, I would compare to um, uh, architects working uh, conventionally today, as you know, where the architecture is visible on paper and it corresponds to a plan. Now. What is happening with the gardener is that the gardener doesn't make plans. To me, that is a, a fascinating fact about gardening. Gardeners very rarely draw, and when they draw, they draw things which are extremely imprecise. Typically, the drawings, say, of Gertrude Jekyll, you know, in the early 20th century, 
the drawings, which are quite charming, but they are, they are lots of circles on the outline plan of the gardens, and each circle has a different blob of color in watercolor, and then there is the name of the plant. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so the drawings are neither here nor there. They are of very little importance in gardening. But uh, what matters is the, the action directly on the ground. And, um, and so the gardener, some gardeners I'm sure will dis would disagree, for instance Le Nôtre, possibly in France, but see, uh, Gardening, in effect, is driven by the relationship with the plants and the pleasure which this relationship entails or gives, and driven also by the necessity of maintenance. And the act of creation of the gardener is in this is in the act of maintenance. It's a bit like raising children, yeah? Um, and this to me has always seemed very, very attractive as an idea, that suddenly you find all this, you know, um, um, attitude towards architecture which is current nowadays where everybody wants to be to make a building which is more visible than the next architect and is looking for fame and that this fame needs to go through this predominance of the visual elements in architecture so that it can be printed in the magazine etc etc all that stuff and uh, this attitude of the of the gardener seems to certainly preempt all of this, and uh, and the results are very often wonderful. And the the counterpart in architecture, for instance, in that essay on landscape painters and architects in Italy, is in um, ordinary architectures. Some nowadays perhaps people would describe it as vernacular architecture. I think to me what I understand as vernacular architecture is much broader than vernacular architecture. It is really, it, it is describing an attitude which people have towards both the making and the inhabiting of buildings. And an, uh, an attitude and a, a relationship which is extremely intimate, just like that of the gardeners with his or her plants. Yeah. Maybe this takes us to another um, theme that reappears in some of your essays. It's another analogy of what the architect is, and it's that the architect is a bricoler. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably worthwhile defining that term. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because, uh, you know, you wrote an essay, Architect is Bricoler, and in there, um, there are kind of three occupations or three categories that you see the architect inhabiting. It's that the Bricoler is a designer, a builder, and a user. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of trio, 
of positions, um, there's a kind of sensitivity there of use of inhabitation. Um, and there's a kind of empathy, I guess, available mm. to the architect if she or, if she or he identifies that way. Mm. But what is a bricolor? What is bricolage? I'll, I'll answer this question sideways, okay. if you don't mind. No. Um, see, this is a, uh, uh, it is an interest which is a, a little bit more recent it's than other things we have talked about. And it has its roots, you know, I've, I've mentioned the roots of the everyday in, in, in conversation I have had with architects and everything I do always starts the same. It starts in conversations I have with architects' friends. Mm. Um, and in this case, it started with conversations I have had with uh, architects at 6A and perhaps especially with Tom Emerson, with whom I used to uh, meet for drinks very regularly and we talked about all kinds of things. And uh, Tom Emerson and Steph MacDonald are very interested, of course, in how one makes things, but there was for them at that time, and we are talking about um, the late 90s, I guess, but this would have started for them before, but a, a frustration with this idea of craft. For them, craft was seen as something far too precious. And um, and too constraining, too too much like say the British tradition of arts and crafts. In other words, there was something uh, um, inhibiting because there was a kind of holiness, um, you know, in this idea of craft as it is um, imagined and practiced in the UK or in England. So we thought, perhaps, uh, that maybe I thought that bricolage uh, was a very good alternative terms in order to discuss how things are made. And, and perhaps, you know, to go back one step to what we were saying before, this idea of bricolage is actually consistent in some significant ways with this idea or with the practice of gardening. Yeah? They are both, in a way, acts of creative maintenance, yeah? in some ways at least, not exclusively. And so that's the way it came on the agenda. And then I started to read as much as I could and checking both what architects had said on that subject and also uh, what, of course, Levi-Strauss said in his essay and, uh, and eventually, together with many other things, this led to the book Never Modern. Mm. Uh, and that essay by Levi-Strauss is uh, The Savage Mind, for those who are interested. Yes, and it's, uh, it's, it's not only, it's, it's more specific than the, the book The Savage Mind, it is the introduction, which is called The Science of the Concrete. Mm -hmm. And this is about four pages, which are very dense. I warned the listener here. Mm -hmm. um, 
and which I think uh, require probably three, four, five readings before one can actually integrate this, at least some of the ideas in this text by Levi Strauss and make them one's own. This is a fascinating text because it has, it has already a history in architecture. You know, it's been very widely read in the 1970s by architecture critics and architects. Including Colin Rowe. Including Colin Rowe. And you mentioned actually, just going I guess back to that period briefly, that the way this term bricolor was initially used in architecture thinking yeah. had more to do with, uh, I guess, architects' relationships to culture, culture and history, yeah. and the way that um, the architect is kind of sifting through the detritus of the past in order to fashion something new or something contemporary. Yeah, that there's this kind of piecemeal accumulation of already existing elements that are just happen to be at hand. Yeah. But then you draw a distinction between how you understand the term bricolor now, which is less to culture and more to, was it environment or ecology or something else? Uh, yes, that's true. <clears throat> but um... But I think that I, I am in a way become, being more faithful to the anthropologists who were interested in bricolage mm. in the 60s and 70s than perhaps other archite I mean, ar architecture writers have been. Because, I mean, the uh, ecological aspect of things, so it might not, they might not necessarily have used the word ecology in the 1960s, 70s was very, very strong. You know, the, one of the main theme in the work of Levi-Strauss and also in the work of people who were close to him uh, like Michel Tournier, not necessarily close to him as friends, but like the novelist Michel Tournier, but and later people who are clearly from that school, like Bruno Latour and, and Descola, the anthropologist, is this question which was timely then and is even more timely now, which is the relationship between nature and culture. So in other words, this was on the table right from the beginning when people started to talk, or Levi-Strauss started to talk about bricolage in the 1960s, late 60s. Um, and that's, um, to me, that was fine. I, mm -hmm. I mean, it uh, was um, um, bringing water to my meal in the right way, in the way I, 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 I welcomed or wanted. So. In, in this essay, though, um, that was written, I think, before the Never Modern book, yeah. the essay Architect as Bricolor, yeah. um, you kind of end on this note, though, and I'm going to quote you, uh, I prefer to envisage bricolage as a state of mind and a mode of design that embraces the rise of ecology. Right. And, and then, surprisingly to me, the essay ends... Um, with this idea that 3D printing will somehow take us there. 
Mm. And I was, I was, I felt like I wanted to ask you if you were writing that essay now, would that be the way you'd end it? Uh, probably not, because partly because my knowledge of 3D printing is not very great. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, the reason why I ended it that way is because the last thing I wanted was people to imagine that bricolage, my, my take on bricolage was um, an, an encouragement for architects to go and do things like people might have, say, in a hippie commune in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. In other words, for me, the, the reservation I had with bricolage when I was talking about it uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was that it, if one handled it badly, it could actually lead to um, uh, buildings and an attitude towards practice and towards building, which at the end was marginal and not very significant. And if you were to ask me how I might finish it today, and I think I'm, I do mention cathedrals in the um, um, in that essay, the architect as bricoler. Mm -hmm. um, for me, cathedrals are the most extraordinary example of bricolage at a gigantic scale. And if one goes back to 3D printing or perhaps to anything which um, computer technology can help us to do, is that um, um, the computer maybe can enable us to act in closer, at least to uh, real time, than we did before. And for that reason, maybe uh, can enable us to be more spontaneous in the way we actually make architecture uh, than we have been in the past. And so in other words, if the computers is allow us to be more spontaneous, more flexible, it might enable us to to you know change course as one makes things in the same way as a bricoler does. I mean, see, etymologically, I think bricolage has this idea of changing course, you know, of taking a swerve from mm. one's trajectory. So, but I mean, this is me trying to be relevant for for the presence, but at the end, you know, one can only raise questions. I cannot write about the future. Uh -huh. uh, Maybe this leads me to a point that we could end on, which is the role of the critic. Uh, you've written on that as well, um, particularly in a piece called Fosami. Yeah. Um, which has to do with your understanding of what a critic ought to do or how a critic ought to be in this cultural milieu of architecture. Mm -hmm. And you assert quite strongly that critics have no power, mm -hmm. or the critic ought to have no power at least. 
um, and instead can only make appreciate have appreciation for things hmm. um, and so what I'm interested in or, or confused by is the fact that despite that intention in fact the critic does have a lot of power and that although ideally criticism is about appreciation it is also about advertisement and about a kind of cultural endorsement um, and so how do you reconcile that in terms of your role as a critic? I wouldn't actually consider people who, um, who write for the purpose of writing publicity or for the purpose of endorsing architects, I would not call these people critics. Mm. I would call those people publicists uh, or PR uh, specialists. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, to be a critic presumes that one is able to think for oneself and you know, irrespective of um, what the subjects or the architects actually need. In other words, for me, the, the independence uh, of the critic is something I would defend um, um, to the death. Is that the right expression? Mm -hmm. I would. I. I. I have. Uh, constantly refuse to compromise in this respect. I have never compromised and my, some of my friends resent me for that reason because they would like me to write about them. Mm. Uh, but I don't, for various reasons. Yeah, some people I don't want to, to write about. And actually I write about a very limited number of living architects and one of the conditions for me to write about them is that I feel that there is a relationship of trust and mutual interest and best of all when it can happen friendship. Um, in other words for me the, the, the secret of good, of the best architecture criticism resides around the intimacy between the critic and the architect. And so there was, in my mind, a golden age of architectural criticism, and this was in the 1960s and especially 70s, uh, when you could say that architects wanted to be intellectual, and critics uh, in some ways wanted to be architects. They were anxious to contribute to the world of architecture. And sometimes you found people who were both. Yeah? I mean, in some ways you could say, I mean, I want to put myself in, in the league of those people. And, uh, you know, we're talking about Colin Rowe, Alan Colhoun, Kenneth Frampton, Martin Pauley. Um, to some extent, John Summerson. I mean, the list goes on. It was this was. That's what you're to say, Rainer Banham. Rainer Banham, of course. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there. I mean, Joseph Rickford. You know, see, see, uh, see. Uh, this particular moment in the uh, in England, 
was truly extraordinary in terms of the concentration of talent and also the extent to which these people were heard and were comfortable with architects and vice versa. There is a very telling example, which is that there was a man who is now largely forgotten, but who used to be the best friend of Colin Rowe when they were you know, studying, a man called Sam Stevens. And Sam Stevens' main contribution to, to the scene was to uh, make lunch on Saturdays, I think it was lunch, and where all those people, architects and critics, were meeting and very informally and for the pleasure of eating and talking. Mm. Uh, to me this is, an, this is an ideal and my and I am trying to actually write as a critic in this way and I think that the best things I do are always stemming from situation where there is precisely this degree of intimacy, of closeness, of, of mutual respect and, and sympathy between my subject and, and me. And that's where I think the, the best result invariably comes, I think. And then this is, you know, people think that criticism is a, is a negative thing, that it's, um, it is about calling somebody's bluff. People imagine that it is what people do in the national press, you know, making sure that a bad project doesn't happen or a good project is improved and so on. This is definitely not the way I see criticism. I see criticism as, uh, as a constructive activity which is giving people the means, intellectuals or possibly even um, simply verbal to actually articulate certain ideas and 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 therefore be and and enlarge the field basically yeah and uh, and possibly also uh, cause some delight by bringing new things on the table mm. um, I just have one more question sure um, and it's about teaching because uh, since 2006, you've been a lecturer at the School of Architecture at the University of Limerick. Yeah. And you've been responsible to a certain degree for the development of the History and Theory program. Yeah. And, and played a role in the guidance of the intellectual direction of the school as well. Um, to me, there's a lot of influence potentially there. And so how do you take this sensibility you describe towards criticism, which is about enlarging or expanding the field and um, I guess creating possibility mm -hmm. intellectually into the project of teaching? Uh, well, I think the answer here is very straightforward. I mean, I, I'm, as a teacher, I'm only interested in one thing. Uh, I'm only interested in help, helping people to think for themselves. Uh, Cedric Price, who used to be around at the AA um, when I was a student and who taught me actually briefly, um, I remember him saying on one occasion that he, 
he really disliked uh, educators, or maybe he said he disliked education, the idea of education. He was only interested in learning. And in other words, he saw himself as learning exactly in the same way as people who were next to him, whether students or teachers, were also learning. That's very much the way I see myself. And so, you know, if I um, teach in Limerick, where people come quite often from a very modest background, um, or if I teach at Harvard, where people come from different backgrounds and are far more articulate in their view and perhaps also more ambitious, at the end my attitude in either situation is not partially different. You know, basically one is always dealing with uh, people who are there, one has to assume for reasons to do with personal curiosity and that as a teacher you only just help them to actually become more curious and eventually to provide the material they might need in order to satisfy that curiosity. But the idea that I could shape their mind to me is anathema. I mean, I think it was Oscar Wilde, so this is a terrible thing. I hope we're not going to finish with me quoting Oscar Wilde. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think it was Oscar Wilde who, was, who said that there is no such thing as a good influence, and I certainly think so myself. Mm. Uh, I think that, you know, everybody, by nature, uh, think for themselves simply for the reason that they are different. You know, I don't believe that anybody is a sheep. Um, so my teaching um, reflect this, and if people are in the way, if a student is unwilling or uninterested to think for himself or herself, I am very disappointed, and in a way I feel considerably less committed. Um, I mean, I expect something back from a student in the same way as I would expect something back from anybody in a conversation. Uh, I'm so tempted now to ask more about your views on the rise of the PhD um, and continuing education in that regard, because this sense that independent thought is kind of what is at the center of um, your approach to teaching teaching someone how to think and not what to think mm. necessarily. I don't think stands at odds to the institutionalization of thought um, or the kind of structuring of credentials that have to do with intellectualism. But at the same time, I do sense that there's like a language that is learned um, in academic institutions um, that has more to do with aligning oneself with um, you know what I'm just kind of about to walk off a precipice <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try to catch you no, no. <laughs> oh my god thank you um, 
I think what I'll do is we'll but, stop. Yeah, but what I, what I could say, what I could say, because, <laughs> I mean, whether it's for, yeah, for it's the, it's a record or not, but, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I have never studied formally writing. Basically, I have an architect's diploma and I have never... I don't have an MA in architectural criticism, I don't have a PhD, nor do I have any particular um, plan to do such a thing. Uh, I, I respect people who, who you know, like to do things that way, but for me, see, uh, see, say, I mean, there is a, a way of learning by simply being close to the subject and by looking at things very carefully and by listening very carefully and perhaps with sympathy because sympathy helps also to get a lot more than you might have otherwise because it becomes a two-way conversation. Um, and so I, you know, whatever I have done, I have done outside the institutions and I have virtually never got a penny out of writing um, but on the other hand I haven't paid either any fees to learn <laughs> how to do it so perhaps I have I am breaking even uh, but uh, I in a way I take pride of this you know I, I, I am pride of this of this I um, it's it feels very much my my it's it's like my own garden yeah mm. and and i don't want i don't welcome anyone to walk on my flower beds <laughs> uh and i'm very protective of this uh of these things which i have tended over a very long period of time yeah and i consider it i mean as a privilege that I have managed at the end to create this um, open land which I can work on in the way I, I see best. And actually, ultimately, I suspect that this is one of the reasons why some people get something from what I write. It's because they can feel that it's been done uh, independently, purposefully, and how can I put it, uncorrupted by the the exigencies which uh, academic institutions sometimes impose on on one's work, and also uncorrupted by what we were talking about before, uncorrupted by uh, the fact that you might make, for instance, financial profit from what you from what you do, basically, none of the, none of this has applied to anything I have written, and for me, this I think is significant. And this is coming back to the 60s, 70s. This is another reason why these people were so good that they were never writing with any other purpose except 
to say something interesting um, about architecture for architect, yeah, or perhaps even for architecture. And you know that at the end, most things which are good tend to be good because they arose in this kind of situation. Not always, but very often, mm. at least. Um, yeah, Renee, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Very nice talking to you, too. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to Irenae Scalbert. Special thanks this week and always to my partner, Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.